for the authority of God's word. If you look inside your worship guide, you will see the text for this morning. It comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. And then also in your worship guide, you will see a little sentence in bold that we'd like to say back to the Lord as our prayer this morning before the preaching of God's word. So this is the word of God according to Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. And he, this is Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. For if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you should say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Well, any one of you who has, who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say, prepare supper for me? Dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he's commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And then we say back to the Lord, flesh is like grass and all its glory is like flowers withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So this seems like this is four different segments, uh, the first section split into two or three different sections put together that look random, and it's my job this morning to try to say that no, the Lord is actually giving us a cohesive unit to be able to help us in what I'm calling everyday faith. What you want and what I want is to experience the Lord, right? We want the Lord's nearness. We want to celebrate him. We want our hearts to jump in gladness. We want to be overcome by uh, thankfulness to him and so therefore express our gratitude to him. Well, in our life and, and maybe even in the West, the way that that is expressed is often in a worship service some kind of emotional moment with God's people, raising hands and, and praising him from our innermost hearts. Well, if you want to have an expressive joy, and if you want to experience the Lord's goodness, oftentimes you don't equate that with conflict resolution, do you? Anything to do with conflict, you hate. In fact, when you think of conflict, you think of something that's going to rip you apart, not put you together, is to separate you, definitely not send you to like great extravagance in your worship to the Lord. And yet what we hear the apostles say is increase our faith. I want to know you more and where the Lord puts this teaching is in the middle of conflict. I do a lot of, conf or I do a lot of premarital counseling and Part of the sessions that we do is on conflict resolution. 
And I say, conflict is never a bad thing. Conflict, when done well, actually builds relationships, strengthens relationships, not tear it apart. And so why are we so afraid of getting into each other's business and asking more from one another, especially inside the family of faith? So what would an everyday faith look like? Revenge. Revenge is a nasty word, isn't it? However, it can be pretty satisfying at the same time. Because when you are wronged, or when I'm wronged, we love, or we have this instinct, this primal instinct to fight back in order to to demand justice from the people who have wronged us so badly. The last thing you want to do when you are wronged is actually to come close to someone, to offer forgiveness. Why do you push somebody in an argument? Because you want them away and fast. That's usually what conflict looks like. Despair, suffering, all of these things have to do with conflict resolution. Vengeance, pain. And so it's really remarkable and it's even surprising when you see the opposite. It's actually a breath of fresh air when you see someone acting differently than what is natural to us. And that's what happened in the aftermath of a terrible shooting in the Amish country in 2006. I don't know if you were around back then, but in 2006 we saw some of the most horrific scenes that we've ever seen. This Amish community keeping to themselves, known for peacefulness, known for unity, A wild gunman just walks into a schoolroom and just starts shooting. In the aftermath of the days, the story quickly moved from the injustice of this deranged shooter to the response of the Amish community. And that's because every person who was interviewed from inside that community offered forgiveness, not revenge. It's surprising when you see the opposite side, isn't it? When you see something other than a raised voice or someone being pushed to the side. So living the Christian life oftentimes is very practical. It's complex for sure, but it can be really, really practical. And so are you avoiding conflict this morning? Are you walking away from a relationship that you should be seeking to heal instead of push away? Well, if so, this passage and this morning is for you. All right, so in our passage here in verses 1 and 2, I want to bring your attention to it and bring you to the realization that there really is a varying uh, spectrum of maturity inside the Christian community. Notice that there is a mature ones or ones that kind of know some answers or not. And then there are little ones in this passage. And so it's essential to recognize that there are this this, this spectrum of maturity when it comes to Christianity. And that's not a bad thing. That's just inevitable. Our mission at Redstone Church is disciples making disciples. We're just tipping our hat to the fact is at any place in our life, there are likely people who are older 
and more mature in our faith and then those who are younger or less mature in our faith and it's okay, that's just the way it is. However, inside this Christian community, there is an expectation for the mature among us to not be a stumbling block or another way to put it, for you to embrace conflict resolution. One way you know that you are mature in your faith is how you handle conflict resolution. Do you run? Do you hide? Do you push? Right? Do you bow up? Or do you do the things that Jesus is about to do for us? In this context, it tells us there are little ones. And in the broader context, it may go all the way back to chapter 15 in which the tax collectors and the sinners are following Jesus, meaning there are in this Christian community right now people who are following Jesus that may have only been doing it for weeks or months at best. And he's looking to the disciples and saying, you have, you have something to do for them. Both Jesus and Paul recognize the same thing, that mature believers may have a freedom to do things that... The little ones are not able to do. But both Jesus and Paul say that the law of freedom should be subservient to the law of love. Meaning the Christian community should always be pursuing unity rather than exerting your own rights. I love Jesus in our passage, verses 1 and 2. He just recognizes and he has great realism. And the fact is that you and I are under temptation. On an everyday basis, temptation is coming to your life and to my life. And it's up to us to know what we are to do in that. But the zinger is that the mature among you, probably the disciples and the apostles, that they were becoming a stumbling block for the little ones. The criticism is the same criticism that he had of the Pharisees that you know better and that you are bringing temptation to these little ones. And so how would you, as a mature believer, how would you bring temptations to little ones? Because I know that in you know, my walk with the Lord, I don't think I've ever tempted someone to murder someone or tempted someone to, to lie or cheat or steal or any of these big ones. So what exactly is going on here that Jesus is saying, woe to you, be careful here and now, do not tempt these little ones. So let's just imagine for a second that you are in the habit of frequently complaining. That's just your go-to. You don't like your in-laws, you don't like your job, your neighbors don't cut their grass on time, all of these types of things, and so you just have a complaining air about you. Well, in your complaining, you may be tempting a little one, a younger one, and be unaware that your complaining actually may affect these little ones in some way because you are encouraging them, too, to be discontent in all things. You are telling them that it's okay to have a lack of joy in their everyday life. And that's on you. You should know better. Or suppose that you have like a judgmental speech about someone else. Maybe someone doesn't meet to your standard and you're always slyly, 
kind of sort of shadow-like, kind of cutting them down. Well, they don't do it right. Or, man, I would never do something like that. But in your words, your judgmental words toward others, that small little smack or that backhanded comment, what you're doing is you're encouraging a little one to form their own biases and maybe to have an unfavorable opinion of someone they've never met. And remember, this is inside the Christian community, and that's on you. Jesus is saying, you are tempting them to do that. And we can go on and on and on. Maybe you're not encouraging people to shoot another, but we are tempting others. And so that's why Jesus uses the word woe. Not like woe horsey, kind of woe, W-O-E. And that's because this is an Old Testament word. In the Old Testament, there are blessings and there are curses. And when there were curses, more often than not, they were accompanied with this word, woe. Jesus is looking to the mature ones. He's looking to the church. He's looking to Christianity and saying, woe, it's on you. You have the ability to tempt other people. And so what is the consequence? It's graphic. He says, it's better for you to have one large stone, larger than you or I could pick up with our own strength. It's better for you to have a stone hung around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea. This is graphic. It's graphic because you've caused a temptation. Someone is following your lead, disciples making disciples, and the people that are, you are following you are actually being tempted to sin, to look less like Christ. And what Jesus is saying in this moment of drowning, where you gurgle and your eyes bulge, and you are at the bottom of a very dark sea, Jesus in a graphic nature says, it's better for you to be down there than up here. Because down there, you can't cause any more harm. Jesus is a hard teacher, isn't he? Sometimes he brings things to our laps that make us very, very uncomfortable. And that's the reason. The reason is because temptation, that's the thing of the devil. That's what he does. He tempts. He lies. He steals. He controls. But more than anything, that primary heart is to tempt you to walk away from God. And so, dear Christian, you are more like the devil than Jesus himself when you tempt others to sin. Let it not be. And so that's when you are causing sin. But Jesus then says the exact same. is like sometimes you do the sinning and then sometimes people sin against you. Look in verses 3 and 4. There is a time when you give an offense, but also there's a time when you take an offense where you are sinned against. And Jesus uses the same kind of bold nature as the woe, and he says, pay attention to yourself. Be on guard against this in the same way. So the warnings are exactly the same. Whether you give or you take an offense, they are the same in Jesus. And ultimately, it comes down to math. I wish it wasn't so because I'm terrible at math, but ultimately this part of the equation comes down to simple math. This is an enormous ask on Jesus' part. He's asking you to forgive 
and then to forgive again, and then to forgive, and then forgive again, and then to forgive, and to forgive again, and forgive once more. That was seven straight forgive statements in a row. And it sounded redundant in 13 seconds. How redundant would it be if you lived your life like this? Conflict is bad, but conflict resolution is now the standard for the Christian people and the family of faith. We should fight for sure, but let's fight for truth and let's fight for unity more than anything. We forgive and then we forgive again. Seven is another Old Testament number. Seven is in the Old Testament, in the New Testament alike. And all, every time that you see this number, it means perfection or completion or wholeness. So it's not by accident that Jesus uses seven here. Because what is the goal for Christian relationships? It's completion. It's wholeness even perfection, for you to come together. And so the point of Jesus' passage here, when you are taking offense, someone is taking, is sinning against you, is for you to still, to take that blame completely and totally on you first. Jesus primarily wants you to monitor your response inside of conflict. Typically, we do the opposite. When we are wronged, what do we do? Right? What do we do when we're wronged? We strike back. What do, we, what do you do when someone says something against you? You're like, well, I'm going to wound you with my words. That's what happens. Jesus pauses. He says, pay attention to yourself. I want you to monitor how you respond when someone wrongs you. And then, mature Christian, the family of faith, monitor that response first and foremost because he knows in the same way that Hebrews knows that when you respond Hebrews tells us that bitterness gets into your heart when you hold anger it actually poisons you and so how do we practice this idea of Christian forgiveness because that's what Jesus is acting, asking from you. How do we do this? Well, there's a sequence to it. I want you to look at this. So let's just look at the sequence. It's, it's three things, three mo- moments of conflict resolution when someone sins against you. First and foremost, it's on you. What are, what are you supposed to do? Honestly, tell them what happened. It's just there. And so when someone sins, right, rebuke them in hopes to bring them back. So first comes this honesty, a place of honesty, precisely. Be able to tell that brother or sister in Christ, this is what has happened. You have a spiritual responsibility to show them, to become a mirror for them. When someone sins, guess what? Their relationship with the Lord is fractured and their relationship with others are fractured fractured. And so when they sin, you say, I care about you more than I care about myself. And I want you to see yourself how how God is seeing you now. And so that's why the first step on you is actually to bring an honest statement to them. The second step is on them. What are they to do? Well, if they receive this word, the, the scriptures tell us that they repent, right? They turn around. 
When you bring an honest statement to them, they were heading in this way, and they come to their senses, and they head another direction. This is the standard. I was going this way. Now a reminder that there's the standard, and so I will walk in accordance to this. It's on you first, but then it's on them. And then the third step in the sequence is it's back on you. If that person repents, your job is to forgive. To have a forgiving heart toward anyone who admits that they were wrong. Not holding a grudge, but forgiving a brother or a sister who says, I'm sorry. And to complete the process toward reconciliation. So do you just do it once and call it quits, call it good? Jesus doesn't say so. He says seven times in the same day. That same backward remark that wounded you where they went to your, your, like your moment of vulnerability and they continue to peck at that one thing. It's not one time and you're good. Jesus says that if this cycle, this three-step cycle happens seven times in one day, you are to be consistent and continue to embrace them and to bring them back. To forgive that person every day, seven times a day for the same sin. And to forgive that person the next day, seven times a day for the same sin. And continue to pursue relationships Demand purity, but if they come back to to embrace them, Jesus puts it into an imperative. That means a command. He says, you must forgive. So when you're sinned against, what do you do? You reconcile. It's completion. The number seven is whole. An old church father I read this week, an old church father likens it to the medical profession. Some of you are in the medical profession and so you kind of understand that. Let's just say that you have a repeat client or customer, a patient who just continues to show up on your docket over and over and over again. Seven days in a row. First it's the sniffles, then it's a broken bone, then his hip went out, then he's got a blood clot, and you just keep going. How can seven days in a row this person continue to show up in my room? A good medical professional deals with what is right in front of him or her. If you're sick, I'm going to bring help. And yet the Christian heart, when you are wronged over and over and over Again, sometimes you're just shutting the door and you're walking away. And Jesus says, it cannot be. The standard is increasingly high over and over and over again. Well, the apostles are listening to all this teaching and they're understanding this, you know, the impossibility of this teaching. And so what do they scream out in verse five? Well, Lord, 
you're going to have to increase our faith. If this is the standard, if this is where you're taking us, then you're going to have to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. You're going to have to increase my faith. Do you want to experience the Lord's presence? Do you want to have an ecstatic moment of great tenderness with your Lord and Savior? Do you want to praise him and see him work in your life? It may be less about a church service and more about everyday faith because you are at odds with somebody right now. In plain sight, there may be a relationship in your life and you are refusing to turn it supernatural. And you are refusing to let faith enter the equation because you are being stubborn. The prayer for us this morning as the church body is increase our faith. Allow us to walk in a way that you want us to walk, Lord. And so they cry out, increase. Mean, make it bigger. Like, make it grow. Let it be seen in us more today than yesterday. That's what they're asking for. I've got a little of it. I want a lot of it. And what does Jesus say? You don't need a lot of it. In all the ironies, he's the greatest teacher of all. If you don't, I mean, if you respect him, just read him. I mean, he's the greatest teacher of all. You're asking for big. Let me just tell you, it just takes just a, just a pinch, just a mustard seed of faith, and it would move things that you would never known to be moved. He didn't, they didn't ask for more obedience. They didn't ask for more courage. They didn't ask for a miracle. What did they ask for? They asked for faith. You know why? Because faith is supernatural. Faith always is attached to God's character. Only the Lord is able to give you that. And so they wanted to give God the credit and for the impossible to happen. Let me tell you, Conflict resolution is impossible. You've got two sinful people who hate each other, right, or are at odds with one another. For those two people to ever reconcile is something supernatural altogether. And guess what? That's the movement of God. He is able to do the impossible. Can you forgive the same person over and over and over? No way. And yet Jesus is giving us an equation where it is a way. It's actually giving credit to him. There's this picture of a tree, a mulberry tree. It's mentioned exactly one time in the Bible. It's right here. There's nothing special about this tree except for the root system. This is the root system that Jesus is going after here. Because a mulberry tree can live up to 600 years. And underneath that tree is this gnarled kind of just a, a ecosystem of roots that are holding on for dear life. In fact, it spreads out wide rather than deep. And so Jesus is giving us something absurd. You can't dig up a mulberry tree, especially an old 600-year-old um, mulberry tree. I mean, you're going to kill it. I mean, you, have you seen the mattocks and the shovels in your shed? It's not happening, much less to pick it up and then go put it into a garden called the ocean and let it live. He's giving you the impossibility. That's the standard of conflict resolution. It is that impossible. Unless God is a part of the equation. Unless faith is a part of the equation. Forgiveness looks gnarled. It looks like a root system. 
but God is able to do more. The very nature and the heart of Christianity is the heart of forgiveness because our Lord and our Savior forgave us much. Forgiveness looks like Jesus on the cross. And what does he say? He speaks it out loud. Father, forgive them. This is the heart of Jesus. When you walked away from a relationship, when you rained down curses on him, he said, forgive them, for they know not what I do. Isaiah 53 tells us and gives us a picture of this suffering servant, the one who is able to go to the cross for our, our behalf. And he's saying, God is doing the impossible through me. And Jesus is telling us, I am the way through which forgiveness and reconciliation is going to happen. I'm going to do the impossible and bridge sinful humanity with a holy God. And if I can do that, I can do it in the church. COVID told us one thing. Our patience and our unforgiveness was larger than our love. The church was known more for their fractures and more for their rebellion than the fact that we loved to forgive. There may be someone right now who has a real name and a real grievance that you have either wronged or has wronged you. And that person has a name and has a grievance. And what Jesus Christ is asking you to do this morning is to forgive them. There's standards, right? There's a sequence in which it needs to happen, but for you to take the first step. What is that man's name? What is that woman's name? What is that elder's name? What is that teacher's name? I don't know. But I know that if you've lived long enough on this world, there's enough damage to go around. And the Lord is just saying, if they are in the people of faith, it's actually hurting not just one, but both of you. Why? because you're not letting God work. And we're the people of God. And we want to give God credit to see him work. And the way that we can see him work is to actually bring faith into equation and to see him work. I told you that this passage is all about math, right? Seven times, over and over and over and over and over again. Well, how does Jesus end this teaching? He ends this teaching by telling us, uh, painting a picture of a servant, a really hardworking servant. He or she goes out into the field every single day. He gets his or her clothes just absolutely filthy every single day. Think about a coal miner in southwest Virginia. I mean, he just goes. He's faithful. And so when he comes home, what is he? He's tired hungry. He's dirty. He's like, I just need something to eat. Can I have some water? I'd like to change my clothes. I just want to, can I just end the day? Well, there's a master and there's a servant. And the master asks the servant to go out and work. And when he comes back, 
Guess what the expectation from the master to the servant is? The expectation is for that his day isn't over. That was just the first part of his job was to work out into the fields. And so when he comes back into the house, the expectation is for that servant to change his clothes, to get into the kitchen, to make a meal, to serve that meal to the master, then clean up that meal before he's able to eat. And of course, everybody in the audience would say, well, that's not fair. What's going on with this story? Well, it's the same story because it's all about math. Because what did the disciple, what did the apostles ask from the Lord? Lord, increase our faith. Another name for Lord is master. And we are the servants in this relationship. And so while we are on earth, we will toil out into the field and behind horses. We will have spades and shovels and we will work with our hands and our backs will be broken. And while we are on earth, we will till the ground dutifully and come home tired, only to be expected to go to the back and to make a meal, to serve the meal, and then to clean up the meal. And on and on and on it goes. On and on and on it goes. That's the requirement of faith. It's not just one and done. He is our master. We are his servants, and we know what the expectation is to place faith into every equation, every single day. Let me pray for us. And so, King Jesus, that's our prayer this morning. On and on and on. On and on and on. Lord, this is a very practical sermon, something that we can sink our teeth into because as I preached, I know that in our own minds, in our hearts, names came to mind and situations came to mind and bitterness rose in our heart and unforgiveness. And then we were in shame when we thought about places where we are a stumbling block to brothers and sisters and, and Lord, we don't know what to do with that and so Lord, help us right now to to leverage faith and to say, Lord, I believe you and I believe your word. And so very practically, how are you, brother or sister, how are you tempting another person today? Maybe not in egregious terms, but just practical ways. How are you being a stumbling block to those who are hearing your words or watching your actions? As a mature, older believer, are you tempting others? I would encourage you now in this space, if you have a pen, to write that down, to look at it in plain and day and say, I do this. Secondly, very practically, who have I failed to forgive? What's the name? 
And what's the situation that makes my heart race, my mind race, makes me cry? Who's hurt you in a way that you need to approach and to say, you sinned against me? And now the third thing that's probably the hardest is to bring the darkness into the light. We would encourage you this morning to actually text somebody by the end of the day and ask someone to hold you accountable to one or both of these things. And how you are tempting others or a relationship that needs at least your first step, how is this to happen? And here's where it gets really hard. That person may be in this church, may be inside your community group, may be inside your family, And what we're about to do is take of the Lord's table where the Lord tells us to dwell in unity. And so our step of faith this morning is to strive toward that picture. And so brothers and sisters, pray with faith and boldness to take the first step to say, I'm sorry. Or you've sinned against me. And so King Jesus, we ask that you will do that on our behalf. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. So this is the Lord.